0: So we are, I believe, what, the fifth week now on our summer series on um, passages that has helped us the most in our life as a Christian. This is a wonderful passage of scripture. If I had my wish, this Psalm 146 verses uh, 3 through 5 will be posted on every courthouse in America and we would be forced to recite this before you vote every year for anything if I had my wish but nevertheless let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us Father we thank you for your mercy Lord you are good and you're kind to your people oh God and Lord we pray that tonight that we hear from you The last thing these people need to hear from is another man. God, I pray that you would use me to speak to them for your glory. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Suffering is revealing. Suffering is revealing. It's one thing to sing about God's goodness, say amen to biblical truths, underline the promises in our Bibles, and pray confident prayers when the sun is shining and life is all good. But the true test comes when the clouds of suffering and distress start to roll in. That's when our theology, our faith, and our trust matter the most. And when it seems as if our suffering and distress is going to linger, then the testing not only intensifies, but it can also reveal where our true trust actually lies. Suffering has an acute ability to tempt us to place our trust in people that we shouldn't. Suffering tends to bring us face to face with how much we trust people, how much we trust people can fix our problems, whether it's politicians, businessmen, uh, preachers and pastors. We can easily pin our hopes on people that we see who who we believe are influential or powerful. This is part of the reason why we are so enamored with fame and power. We live vicariously through powerful and influential people, and most of us believe our life would be better if our people were in control. And Psalm 146 reminds us to not put our trust in princes, in human leaders, and in influential people. It reminds us that there are limitations to human leadership and government, and that these systems and those people who lead them are frail. This psalm warns us that man's inability to save reveals the vanity of putting our trust in anyone but Yahweh, and then informs us that our deliverer does not occupy a seat at the, on the Supreme Court, He does not reside in the White House, sit on the boardroom of any company, or stand behind a pulpit of any church. If you are suffering and your confidence is waning, then I encourage you to listen deeply to the words of Psalm 146. Psalm 146 is a psalm that the Lord himself inspired to help people like us. Amen? The main point of this psalm is found in verse 5. It reads, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And here this word blessed simply means happy, glad, or joyful depending on which Bible translation you're using. And Jewish tradition tells us that or calls this psalm a hallelujah of Haggai or Zechariah. However, there's no explicit statement in scripture that indicates either of these two prophets are the authors of this psalm. Nevertheless, the style, the language, the references to other psalms suggest that this psalm was written after the exile. And so for this reason, we can therefore conclude that this psalm addresses a time of great distress for the people of God. So the Lord inspired this psalm to exhort his people to trust and hope in the Lord in their suffering. And he does this by reminding the people of God that, the on, that only the Lord is worthy of our trust. And given the people's circumstances at the time, they would have been tempted to put their trust and hope in powerful and influential people of their day. So the main aim of this psalm is to uplift the distressed, console the afflicted, and to instill confidence in those who doubt. Because the reality is that we often fail to sufficiently trust and praise our Lord when we are in suffering or in distress. And with that, our goal is to convince the people of God to put their trust in the only being worthy of it the God of Jacob, and to praise him forever. So if you look at the handout, the first stanza of the 146th Psalm, it's a command. It's a command to all of God's people to praise Yahweh. That's our first point. The, second, the next stanza is in verses 3 through 4. It gives a negative command to not put our trust in princes, because man's help is vain. That's point number two on your handout. Then point number three on your handout is found in verses five through nine. And it reminds us why only the Lord is worthy of our trust, because Yahweh's help is sure. And the last point is found in verse 10, and it expands the command from verse one to praise Yahweh forever. So we're we're at point number one, it's in verse one. Our text begins with the phrase, Praise the Lord, which literally means praise Yah and is pronounced Hallelujah. Both the first line and the last line of this psalm, verse 10, read, Praise the Lord. Both are positive commands to the corporate people of God to praise Yahweh. But then immediately, the psalmist moves from a call to corporate praise to a vow of individual personal praise. You see this in the second line of verse 1 when the Bible says, praise the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist' individual vow is a declaration of the type and the duration of his individual praise. The type of praise that the psalmist vows to give is a praise of the soul. The duration of of his praise that the psalmist vows to give is lifelong and he says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live and while I have my being. The psalmist vows to praise the Lord for his entire life and with his whole person. And in making this vow to praise the Lord, he is declaring that the type of praise that he will give to the Lord will be more than simply singing, but that his mind, his heart, His will, his emotions, his desires, his entire inner self will be called upon to praise the Lord. He is vowing to praise the Lord with his soul, with all that he is. Further, the psalmist is making this, in making this vow, is declaring the duration of his praise. He is declaring that his praise will extend beyond any one single moment, beyond a season in his life, and beyond certain occasions and circumstances but will encompass his entire life you see that in verse 2 when he says I will sing praises to my God while I have my being and he is vowing that his entire life will be a constant continued praise of Yahweh so in other words again the psalmist vows to praise the Lord with his whole person for his whole life and family we have to take notice of who the psalmist is vowing to give his praise to with his whole person for his whole life. Look again at verse 2. He says, I will praise the Lord in all caps as long as I live. Now, when the psalmist makes this vow to the Lord, he's not making a, a vow of some kind of a general detached vow, but he invokes God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. Then he further emphasizes the point by saying, I will sing praises to my God. Yahweh is the psalmist's God. For this man, for this psalmist, God is not a distant idea and a theoretical or theological concept, but he is a personal God. And therefore, he vows to praise Yahweh and declares him to be my God. This psalm is a ballad of devotion, invoking the Lord's covenant name not once, not twice, but a remarkable 11 times. Furthermore, the term God or a variation of it graces our ears in this Psalms four more times. So in just 10 verses, the psalm sings a chorus of 15 references to God or to Yahweh, the God-centeredness of this psalm is underscored by the fact that in this psalm, Yahweh is the object of praise in verses 1 and 2. Yahweh is highlighted as creator, redeemer, and helper in verses 6 through 9. And again, Yahweh is the object of praise in verse 10. So what the psalmist does in making this vow is declare that his entire life and entire existence will harmonize with the melody of this psalm, and he is vowing that his life will be God-centered, focused on God, and utterly intoxicated by Yahweh. And he pours out his heart in a vow of lifelong praise that involves all that he is, all that he does, and he does all of this before he ever tries to convince anyone else to trust the Lord. We will see in the rest of this psalm that the writer of this psalm, he's trying to convince us that we should only trust the Lord and no one else. And he gives reasons and explanations and justifications for putting our trust in Yahweh. But before he does any of that, his own heart and his own mind is convinced what was already in his soul first simply found its way to his lips. And he was simply one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. If you are in this room and you fancy yourself a future preacher or a pastor or your current parent or future parent or you desire to evangelize the lost or your loved ones, please listen to me. Our exhortations have more force when they are enforced by our example. Our counsel carries more weight when our actions are aligned with our appeals. So as we go about making our appeals to unbelievers, to trust the Lord, and exhorting our children to trust the Lord, I pray that we actually believe this. I pray our lives sing like this psalm does as a testimony of lifelong, devoted, God-centered praise to Yahweh. Family, we, like this psalmist, must vow to praise the Lord in the same way. With our minds, with our hearts, with our wills, our emotions, our desires, our very souls. Our praise must be centered on God, focused on God, and utterly intoxicated by God. And our praise must be more than abstract, theoretical, Yahweh must be our God. Verses 1 and 2 of this psalm is a reminder, we must make both individual and corporate praise of the Lord important, frequent, and constant. And one way you can start is by showing up here on the Lord's Day as much as possible. And praise God. Worship on the Lord's day is the appropriate place for the people of God to corporately praise Yahweh and offer up our personal hallelujahs. So, when we read verse 1, we see a positive command to the people of God to praise the Lord. Then the psalmist moves from a positive command to a negative command in verses 3-4. through which warns against wasting our trust on princes because man's help is in vain. Man's help is vain. Man's help is vain. We're in verse 3, which says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. The Lord through the psalmist is prohibiting that the the people of God trust even the most exalted and powerful men, then he gives reasons why we should not trust these men. The word here translated princes in verse 3 is a general term used to describe the highest ranks of society, political leaders, or anyone who might seem socially prominent. Then he describes the people that we shouldn't trust as a son of man. Now, the psalmist is calling on the people of God not to look to the influential people in society to give them any kind of salvation or hope. These princes, these leaders, and these socially prominent people are what the Bible calls a son of man. Now, what we have here is wordplay in this text, and it escapes us in the English translation because the word for man in Hebrew is Adam, and the word but earth is the place that they will be going is Adamah. So we shouldn't trust these people because they're sons of Adam, and when they die, they'll return to Adamah. So what you have here is Hebrew wordplay. So, And then the psalmist explains why we shouldn't put our trust in these princes. He explains there is no salvation in them, and when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that day, his plans perish. This statement implies four reasons for not trusting these people, not trusting these princes. The first reason is their inability. The second reason is their mortality. The third reason is their reliability. And the fourth reason is just good, plain, common sense. Okay? First, their inability. There is no salvation in them. They are unable to truly save or to help you. Second, their mortality. His breath will depart from him, meaning his life will end. All men, even the most exalted men, and the most powerful men are but dust, and to dust they shall return. Genesis 3.19. And all that any man has, whether he be weak or powerful, is the grave. Third, their reliability. When these princes die on that day, their plans or his plans perish. When he dies, his plans die with him. No matter how grand the plan, no matter how exact the execution, and no matter how much they care, all their plans perish when they perish. And then the fourth reason is common sense. Since there is no salvation in these men, They too need salvation from the Lord. They can't save themselves. How are they going to save you? The mightiest of men must look to Yahweh for salvation, for mercy every day. And it is the Lord that sustains even the princes. They have no means and no power to save even themselves. And therefore, it is a violation of common sense for the people of God to put our trust in them. They need the exact same help that we do. Amen? So what the psalmist is doing here is trying to help us avoid the error of connecting our hopes to the passing lives of princes and influential people. These people are insufficient to bear the weight of your hope. I'm going to say it again. These people are insufficient to bear the weight of your hope of our hope. When the bell tolls on a prince's life, all of his aspirations are going to crumble. All of his plans are going to vanish without a trace, and the intentions of his heart are going to turn to dust. Any man, even the best of them, lacks the ability to save and is therefore unworthy of your trust, family. A man's life is as fleeting as his breath and according to Calvin, that makes it foolish for us to place our trust in frail, immortal men and vanity to seek comfort and security in places it cannot be found. Family, the only man, only a man, only a man whose plans can outlast the grave is worthy of your trust. Our Savior's reign endured death And his eternal plan outlasted the grave. And for this reason, he alone is worthy of your praise. Verses three and four of this psalm what they do is they reveal to us that the psalmist has a deep, deep understanding of the deceptive nature of earthly power and human might. However, this realization does not make him hopeless. Nor does it cast any shadow of sorrow on this psalm at all. Instead, it serves as a profound lesson, inspiring him to cling tighter to the Lord. So if verses 3 and 4, if they were left to stand alone and this was the end of this psalm, what we would have is a song of sorrow and a gospel of despair. And it would paint a picture of human existence as pointless and miserable. However, verses 3 and 4 are a prelude. A prelude to the unveiling of our eternal Lord of glory. The only one, the only one in whom it is safe and secure to put your trust in. And therefore, there is no traces of sadness found in this psalm at all. This psalm quickly transitions from declaring the vanity of man's help to singing joyfully about the blessedness of placing our trust in the hands of our faithful, mighty, eternal God, Yahweh. Yahweh's help is sure. Yahweh's help is sure. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. This is the highlight of the entire psalm. The word of God declares, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Because the psalmist's goal is to remind the people of God that no one else but the Lord is worthy of our trust, he directs our attention to the power and the faithfulness of Yahweh. And so by focusing on God's power and faithfulness, faith and trust is stirred up, should be stirred up in our souls. Verse 5 tells us that that the blessed man, the blessed man, is the one whose help and hope is in the God of Jacob and the Lord his God. The mention of the God of Jacob in, this, in the Psalms often serves as a reminder of God's faithfulness to his covenant people and the Lord's ongoing involvement in their lives. And it highlights the connection between the covenant promises made with God and Jacob and his descendants. Jacob's name was associated with human weakness, with deceit, with struggle. And despite these shortcomings, God's faithfulness was evident in Jacob's life, transforming him into a vessel for God's purposes. Despite Jacob's faults and flaws in sin, the Almighty did not abandon him. No, God continued to work through him and his descendants, demonstrating his grace and his covenant faithfulness. And by calling the Lord the God of Jacob, the psalmist is emphasizing the Lord's grace in working through sinful, broken individuals, showcasing the Lord's unwavering faithfulness to his covenant promises. Family, I want to remind you that only the God of Jacob is worthy of our trust. Because, like, unlike, because unlike the vain help of powerful men, Yahweh's help is sure. He is not only the God of the powerful, the God of the influential and the mighty, but he also is the God who extends grace and mercy to those who are weak and struggling. If the almighty God of Jacob in his transcendent glory in power would stoop down and help somebody like Jacob, then helping the weak and the needy must surely make up who and what he is. And you and I, if we are thinking clearly, we are humbled by our own sins, our own flaws and, and faults and shortcomings and foolishness. And it is from the depths of our faithlessness that the Lord reveals his great unwavering faithfulness to his people. And because of his faithfulness, faithfulness that extends to all who trust him, no one else, no one else but Yahweh is worthy of our trust. So beginning at verse 6 and running through verse 9, what the psalmist does, he lists nine acts of God, Designed to inspire trust in him. These nine acts are divided into two parts and the two parts can be identified by a change in the sentence structures. Okay, so first, we see a series of participles in verses 6 through 7b followed by a series of short, concise sentences which recount the Lord's actions in verses 7c through 9. So while a change in the sentence structure is apparent by the way that it's written, it doesn't necessarily indicate a difference in thought. The only difference between these two sections seems to be that in the second section, verses 7c through 9, that the psalmist is emphasizing the Lord's compassion towards his people. So the first part of these nine divine acts are are found in verses 6 through 7b. 6 through 7b, and it reads, Who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes just, justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. These are all participles and are all written to draw our attention to a particular aspect of the Lord's glory. Since Yahweh is the Lord who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, he's powerful, and he's creator. Since Yahweh is the Lord who keeps faith forever, he's faithful. Since Yahweh is the Lord who executes justice for the oppressed, he is righteous. And since Yahweh is the Lord who gives food to the hungry, he is good and benevolent. So first, the the psalmist mentions that the God of Jacob is also the Lord who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And the reason he does this is to focus our attention on God's power. And and he does this to convince us that no one else but Yahweh is worthy of your trust. As creator, the Lord has both power and control over heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. The Lord's eternal power and divine nature is clearly seen in all creation And in Acts 15, 14, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse, Psalm uh, 146, verse 6, and states that because God is creator, then only the Lord and not men should be praised. Because God is the creator of, of all things, he has the necessary power to bless us whenever we ask him for help, family. This is essential for our trust. We must be assured of the power of the person that we are putting our trust in. So what the psalmist does is call heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them as witnesses. Witnesses to testify to the fact that Yahweh is not like man. Yahweh is not like the men who do not have the power to save. And he does this to convince us that no one else but Yahweh is worthy of our trust. Look at the next participle. It's the very last phrase in verse 6. It says, who keeps faith forever? Now, this one is interesting because of all of these four participles that I just read, this is the only one that's prefaced by or beginning with a, de- a de- definite article. And So, the, again, this fact is lost in English translation. Nevertheless, it's noteworthy. The reason for this might be that the psalmist is laboring to emphasize the faithfulness of God. He wants to stress the greatness of Yahweh's steadfast love toward his people and highlight the fact that the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Family, while it is essential for us to believe, a person has the power or has power in order for us to trust them. Power alone is not enough to draw out our heartfelt trust toward someone. There are many powerful people in institutions that you should never trust. Power can be unpredictable, and its intentions can be beyond our purview. Therefore, if it is to be trusted, its purposes and its methods must be understood before any of us will put our trust in it. And so for this reason, the psalmist adds the Lord's unchanging faithfulness to his power. And that's why the psalmist reminds us in verse 6, that the Lord is the one who keeps faith forever, but power, no matter how faithful, is not worthy of trust either, unless it works according to righteousness, and it has the conviction to war against wrong and evil. For this reason, the psalmist adds, the exercise of righteousness to the Lord's unchanging faithfulness and almighty power. Look at verse 7. It says that the Lord is the one who executes justice for the oppressed. But family, even this is not enough. Because almighty power, unchanging faithfulness, and inflexible righteousness, what they do is they present a picture of a stern God that must be feared, but he might not be able to be approached. So for this reason... The psalmist adds the Lord's benevolence or goodness to his almighty power and unchanging faithfulness and inflexible righteousness. Look at verse 7 again. It says that the Lord is the one who gives food to the hungry. So again, the psalmist calls on more witnesses to testify, witnesses that testify to the fact that Yahweh is almighty, unchangeably faithful, righteous, and benevolent. And anyone in need can turn to the Lord and be certain, certain that the Lord, unlike these powerful men, has the necessary might, faithfulness, righteousness, and goodness to help and to save them. And again, the psalmist calls on these witnesses to convince us that no one else but Yahweh is worthy of your trust. So the second part of these non divine acts is found in verse, verses 7c, the last phrase of 7, verse 7 through 9. And they are a series of short sentences that testify to the Lord's compassion to our suffering. The Word of God declares this. The Lord, set the pris- the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widows and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. So before we dive into the Lord's compassion, I want you to take notice of something here. For the psalmist, none of these circumstances will diminish his trust in the Lord or cause him to lose any hope in God. He does not see any of these terrible circumstances as an excuse to question God's goodness. Rather, he sees them as opportunities for the Lord to display his compassion and goodness to his people. Amen? Family, our powerful, righteous, almighty, benevolent God has great compassion for those who are suffering. And in his heart, he understands our afflictions. And in his hand, he possesses the remedy for all of our troubles. Beginning in the last line of verse 7, the psalmist lists six acts that the Lord carries out for specific groups of people. First, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord sets free those who are enslaved or wrongly imprisoned by evil and unjust rulers. I want you to consider Joseph, who was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and unjustly imprisoned. And in Genesis 39, verse 21, says that, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And eventually the Lord set Joseph free. Later we see in in redemptive history that the God of Jacob freed the Israelites who were enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. Later on in history, the Lord used William Wilberforce, a Christian man, to lead the movement to abolish the slave trade in England. But the greatest liberation is by is the one that was by the lord jesus christ who through his death burial and resurrection set us free from sin satan death hell and the grave and those whom the son set free are free indeed second in verse 8 the lord opens the eyes of the blind the lord opens the eyes of the blind so in ancient israel physical blindness was very common And it was, according to one commentator, a most distressing condition in which the unfortunate person was entirely at the mercy of his fellow man. But even for these helpless people, the psalmist holds out hope. In the ministry and in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, he healed both physical and spiritual blindness. This was on full display in John chapter 9 when he healed a man who was born blind. Our Savior provided physical healing for many blind people. But he ensures healing for every spiritual blind person who call on him. John 8, 12 testifies that Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Third, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord lifts up those who are humbled in this life. I want you to consider Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, 19. Our God is the God of great reversals. What counts for much in this world counts for very little in God's economy. This is why James says, but he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is good news for those who trust the Lord and who are burdened, brought low, and discouraged in this life. Be encouraged, saints. The Lord will lift you up. Fourth, we see that the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord loves the righteous. It may seem a little strange for the righteous to be in this list, but we must remember that it is the righteous in the Psalms who are constantly afflicted, assaulted, and oppressed. Psalm 34, says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Those who are right with the Lord are completely dependent on him and trust him. You should know that the Lord loves the righteous. And you should know... That no one else but the Lord is worthy of your trust. Fifth, look at verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners or the strangers. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. This pitiful trio of strangers, widows, and orphans would have been the most helpless people in all of Israel. Sojourners or strangers would have been easily exploited and they required special protection. Orphans and widows were often unfairly taken advantage of because they had no father or husband to provide for them and were also required special protection. That's why Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 9, um, Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 19 says, The Lord executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. All of this echoes the testimony of what we see here in uh, Psalm 146, verse 9, and it is the extent of this trio's despair and hopelessness that showcases how deep the Lord's compassion truly is. If you are here without a father or a mother or you are orphaned in the world, trust that the Lord will sustain you. The Lord will help you. If you lost a spouse by death, by desertion or divorce, the Lord cares. The Lord knows he will sustain you and he will give you the strength you need to continue. Dear Christian, I want to remind you that you were at one time separated, separated, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ The Lord has come, and he has preached to you, and you believed him. You were at one time far off in a stranger and an orphan, but now you have access to the Father in Christ, and you are no longer a stranger. You are no longer an alien, but you are fellow, fellow citizens with the saints. You are no longer an orphan, but you are a member of the household of God. Praise God. And six, he says that the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The way of the wicked he brings to ruin. That's at the end of verse 9. So after the psalmist recalls these six actions of Yahweh to convince us that Yahweh's help is sure, he adds one final touch. A final touch to further convince us to only trust Yahweh. He says that the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord, in the long run, always frustrates the plan of the wicked. And he prevents the wicked from achieving whatever their ultimate goal is. Again, this is essential to trust. The Lord would be unworthy of our trust unless his rulership included crushing evil and squashing the intentions of the wicked. The people of God... Do not need to fear the assaults of the wicked because God will bring them to nothing. Proverbs fourteen eleven said that the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it is the way of death. So family, I want to exhort you tonight. Do not put your trust in princes. Only Yahweh is worthy. Only the God of Jacob is worthy. He is creator, savior, helper, redeemer, liberator, comforter, the physician of Israel, the defender of the stranger, father to the fatherless, and the guardian of the widow. And no one else but Yahweh is worthy of your trust. One of the last point, praise Yahweh forever. Praise Yahweh forever. You find that in verse 10. The psalmist sings, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all the generations. Praise the Lord. This psalm ends with one final reason why no one else but Yahweh is worthy of our trust. The blessedness and glory of trusting in the Lord is bound up in this one great thought in this last verse. The Lord will reign forever. The sovereignty of God to all generations again points to the vanity and the futility of putting our trust in earthly princes. To trust in fleeting power is madness, but to trust in the eternal king is wisdom and blessedness. The Lord will reign forever. Our eternal king will not die like these human kings. But his reign will be from everlasting to everlasting. Our eternal king will be enthroned forever. His royal decrees and promises are permanent. And his rule is not and will not be bound by time. He is the Lord Yahweh, is the king of kings. And as their great king, he will bring his perfect kingdom of righteousness into this just world, and he will reign eternally. But right now, right now, we still see many in this world who are wrongfully imprisoned, people who are blind, people who are depressed, people who are bowed down, the righteous being persecuted, strangers being exploited, and we still see helpless widows and orphans. And some will no doubt ask the question, can we really trust the Lord? And they would not be the first person to ask this question. While John the Baptist was unjustly in prison, he asked a similar question. He sent his disciples in Matthew 11 to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? And listen to how the Lord answers him. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. That's Matthew 11, verses 3-4. through 4. Family, it is only when we read Psalm 146 in the light of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, can this question be sufficiently answered? Can we really trust the Lord? It is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ which gives justice to the oppressed. Because Jesus is the living bread come down from heaven, the hungry are fed. It is the gospel which sets the prisoners free from guilt and the power of sin. It is the Holy Spirit Secured for us by Jesus Christ, who gives faith and therefore spiritual eyes to hear and see the truth of the gospel. It is the yoke of Jesus, a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light, that lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous, which is why he makes the perfect righteousness of Jesus freely available to all who seek it. It is Jesus who leads the surjoiner to the heavenly city. It is Jesus who makes us acceptable before the Father and makes us a part of his family, and that is why we are no longer strangers or aliens. And it is Jesus who tells those who do not trust him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It is Jesus who is the one who secures and dispenses every one of the covenant promises and curses described here in Psalm 146. Jesus is the God of Jacob. And he is the great king who will reign from Zion for eternity. Can we really trust the Lord? Absolutely. Absolutely we can trust the Lord. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us that those of us who already trust him? King Jesus taught his people to trust the Lord for every need. For every need. Jesus said in Matthew 6... us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, and he has charged us to represent him in this world, to be his hands and his feet, to help the poor and to help the afflicted. In Luke 14, 13 through 14, Jesus told one of his hosts, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's Luke 14, 13 through 14. When the Lord comes again, he will be enthroned in glory. And there will be gathered before him all the nations. And he will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And the ones who are called blessed by my father, and those who will inca- inherit the kingdom of God are the ones who are the sheep on his right. And then he describes them as those who gave him food when he was hungry, drink when he was thirsty, welcomed him as a stranger, clothed him when he was naked, visited him when he was sick, went to him when he was in prison. And these things were not done directly to Jesus, but to his bride, the church family, your orders are simple. Your king has commanded you, love your neighbor, whether sinner or saint. So then, this psalm, what it does, it it ends the same way it begins, with this grand hallelujah at the end of verse 10. It says, praise the Lord. But this time, the psalmist calls on the people of God when he says, O Zion. Zion is the earthly dwelling place of the king. So the Lord's anointed king, Jesus Christ, is the sovereign king over all that he has purchased with his blood. And all who trust in him are his people. We are now the people of Zion, all those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Lord returns, he will complete the work of bringing his kingdom to this earth by redeeming all of creation And dwelling personally with his people. And in this eternal Zion, there will be no prisoners, blind people, those who are bowed down. There will be no strangers, no orphans, and no widows. Revelation 21, verse 3, triumphantly declares, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, But he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's Revelation 21, three through five. So no more mourning is what he promised us. And no more mourning means no more prisoners, no blind, no lame, none who are bowed down, no strangers, no orphans, no widows. The Lord has promised his people this blessed future and he will bring it to pass. Because the Lord's promises are trustworthy and true. And all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. So in spite of all this evil that we see in this world today, we can trust our almighty, faithful, righteous, benevolent, good God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We must trust him. He is the only one worthy of our trust, amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we need you, O God. We pray, Lord, that you would help us in our distress. Help us, God, to put our trust in you alone and no one else so that we can know the joy of our salvation And praise our Lord, Savior, and King Jesus with our whole lives. Help us to do these things, O God, by the aid of your spirit and for your glory. It's in the name of King Jesus we pray. Amen.